Our scripture reading this afternoon is from the book of Zechariah, beginning in chapter 12 on page 950. In your pew Bibles, it's the second to last book in the Old Testament, second to last minor prophet who preached with Haggai during the time of the rebuilding after exile, yet both of whom also looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. Zechariah um, chapters 9 through 14, I believe, are quoted more than any other section of, of the Old Testament in the gospel accounts of Christ's passion. Uh, meaning as the, the gospel writers seek to point us to Jesus' death as the fulfillment of what was spoken by the prophets, um, they take us more than anywhere else to this section of Scripture. Uh, remember as Jesus enters in on Palm Sunday, they quote from Zechariah chapter 9, about the king coming in, humble and riding on a donkey. They uh, quote the days and hours leading up to Jesus' death from Zechariah 11 and 12 and 13 and show how Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the prophets spoke of. So we'll read um, one of those sections, Zechariah 12, verse 10. We'll read through 13, verse 1, where it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves. And all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. On that day, there should be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. As far the reading of God's words, we'll uh, look at that in connection with Lord's Day 26 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Last week, Reverend Offringa um, read Lord's Day 27, so we'll circle back now to Lord's Day 26, which we missed. It's on page 883, in the back of your hymnals, where we'll read questions 69 through 71. Recall this is in the section... Um, where we've, we've just heard about God's wondrous acts in creation and redemption through a study for 14 or 15 Lord's Days through the articles of the Apostles' Creed. And the question is asked, what good does it do for us to believe all this? And we're told that by faith in this gospel, God grants and credits to us the perfect righteousness, satisfaction, and holiness of Christ as if we had been as perfectly righteous as he had, as we had never sinned nor been a sinner. So then Lord's Day 25 asks, um, how is it that God works this faith within us? We're told that it's by word and sacrament, and so now we consider the question, how is it that these sacraments confirm the promise of the gospel to us? So we'll read this concerning baptism. Question 69, how does holy baptism remind and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross 
benefits you personally. In this way, Christ instituted this outward washing and with it promised that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and spirit wash away my soul's impurity, that is, all my sins. What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means that God, by grace, has forgiven our sins because of Christ's blood poured out for us in his sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with Christ's spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed and sanctified us to be members of Christ so that more and more we die to sin and live holy and blameless lives. Where does Christ promise that we are washed with his blood and spirit as surely as we are washed with the water of baptism? In the institution of baptism, where he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved but whoever does not believe will be condemned. This promise is repeated when Scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. Congregation, as we think this afternoon about um, baptism and how it is that Jesus' death Um, on the cross is pointed to in baptism, what we're reminded in those words that we just confessed is that baptism is an outward washing, boys and girls, something like a a shower, where God gives us a, a picture of how he washes away our sins by the blood of Jesus. So that every time we see a baptism, every time you think upon your own baptism, God means for you to be comforted in what he has there signified, that by faith in the blood of Jesus, our sins are washed away. That's the message of baptism. Christ instituted this outward washing, and with it promised that as surely as water washes away the dirt from my body, so certainly, by his blood and spirit, Christ washes away all my soul's impurity. And it says, that is all my sins. In case we had forgotten what our soul's impurity is, it is our sin. So that's the, the message of baptism. It's a message that we see prophesied in Zechariah 12 and Zechariah 13, where the, the piercing of the one who is both human and divine that leads to a cleansing fountain being opened for all God's people. That's what we read in Zechariah 12, 10, in 13.1, which we want to consider this afternoon alongside Lord's Day 26, as we think about this promise of the gospel that God will wash his penitent people by the blood of his son. That very simply is the promise of the gospel that God will wash away the sins of his penitent people by the blood of his son. 
And so we consider that first from Zechariah before we then think about how what um, Zechariah prophesies here is pictured in the sacrament of baptism. So just two points, the, the washing of our sins. As you look mainly at Zechariah 12, 10, and 13, 1, and then God's gracious sign that pictures the very thing that is here promised. First, the washing away of our sins. Is this in Zechariah where God says in 12 verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and of pleas for mercy so that when they look upon me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. They'll weep bitterly as one weeps for a firstborn. This is what God says in Zechariah 12 verse 10. Then in verses 11 to 14, he, he goes on to describe the magnitude of their mourning before then saying in 13 verse 1 that on that day, that is the day of their mourning, he will open up a cleansing fountain for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. So those are the two verses that we want to consider this afternoon, 12 verse 10 and then 13 verse 1, where in those two verses we see three things. We see uh, what Zechariah refers to as the piercing of God. We see then the mourning of his people. We see finally the cleansing of their sin, piercing, mourning, and cleansing. Notice first piercing in Zechariah 12 verse 10 where it says again they will look on me on him whom they have pierced now, this is this is God speaking and so the natural way of taking it is is that God is saying that his people will pierce him it's sort of interesting even if you just think about the, the pronouns he says they will look on me on on him whom they have pierced. And so I think it's the case that we see already here in the Old Testament a little hint at the doctrine of the Trinity. God is is speaking of the one who is pierced both as me and as him. This is the the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But what what it says of this one who will be pierced is that he's going to be struck with a, a fatal stab wound. That's, that's what this word pierce means throughout the Old Testament. Um, this, this word is used on several occasions. You think of Saul at the end of 1 Samuel. He's pierced with a sword. Um, Numbers chapter 25, when the Israelites are intermarrying with the Moabites and they're told not to, and then Phineas uh, comes and pierces the young man and his uh, Moabite bride through or Abimelech in Judges chapter 9. Whenever this word is is used, it it speaks of physical stabbing by a sword or spear that's often fatal. And so what Zechariah 12 verse 10 is is saying is applying that same word to God. Somehow, they will pierce God. But of course, they, they don't yet understand everything that I just said a moment ago about the, the doctrine of the Trinity and, and the three persons in, in one. And, and so they're, they're left to wonder um, if, as, as uh, we confess in the, the child's catechism, or as some of us in our, our homes maybe lead our, our children to confess that God is a spirit and has not a body like men, then how is it that God is a spirit could be pierced? How are they going to pierce him? 
And so as the, the commentators um, wrestle with this, some believe that, that this was a, a metaphorical sort of piercing, that, that by their sin and unbelief, they'll, they'll pierce God's heart, so to speak. Um, others believe that this is not so much metaphorical, but rather symbolic, and that they literally will, will pierce one of God's symbolic representatives, a prophet or, or priest or king who they'll put to death. And still others think it's some sort of combination, that they have rejected God in their unbelief, which is then symbolized in their putting to death one of his servants. So the commentators wrestle. What exactly is this saying? But as we turn to the New Testament, the New Testament sheds some light on this. When it, it quotes Zechariah 12, verse 10, in John chapter 19, the context of Jesus' crucifixion and says that the piercing of Jesus' side on the cross took place so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And then can you guess, what's the verse that it quotes? Zechariah 12, verse 10, they will look on him whom they have pierced. John says that's Jesus. This verse here in Zechariah 12, verse 10, is talking about him. And and John then repeats this in Revelation chapter 1 when he says, after that same greeting that we just opened our service with, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and the tribes of the land will mourn because of him. That's an unmistakable allusion back to Zechariah 12, verse 10, confirmed by the fact that John has already quoted this In John 19, the apostle whom Jesus loved, loved this verse. One commentator says that the New Testament thus penetrates the obscure corners of this verse with light from the cross. Or James Boyce said, apart from the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, these words would remain a mystery. For no one can pierce or wound God. Not unless God first takes on human flesh, which is precisely what happened in Jesus Christ. He is God with us. He is God come to die, who at the cross, where this verse is fulfilled, was pierced for our transgressions. That's what Isaiah 53 says. He he enters into the suffering that this verse speaks of as fully God and fully man. It is pierced by his people. The God-man Jesus Christ sustains a fatal stab wound with a spear, as that word literally means. They hand him over to death, metaphorically piercing God's heart, killing God's representative, and piercing even God himself. This verse can only be fulfilled in the incarnation and crucifixion of our Lord. God himself come in the flesh to die. John 19, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So that's the, that's the piercing of God. That's the first thing that we see in Zechariah 12, 10. The next thing that we see in these verses is, is the mourning of God's people. God says in verse 10, they will look on me, on him whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn. He goes on to say, as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly as one weeps over a firstborn. By the way, this is the same kind of language that John uses in his gospel to describe Jesus as God's only son. So it might be another aspect of John hinting at this verse being fulfilled. 
But the point that we're meant to see, as you think about this morning in response to the piercing of the God-man, that the, the point that we're meant to see is that this morning is not a hopeless morning. This is a morning in repentance. This is something like what we see in the book of, of Jonah with, with the Ninevites, where they mourn over their sin because they realize what they've done. They're repenting and seeking God's mercy. People realize what they've done. They, they realize that this is an innocent man, the son of God, God's only son, as 12 verse 10 says. And so they weep over what they've done. The idea in this passage is that they perceive their guilt and they are overwhelmed by grief and they seek forgiveness. This is clear from, from at least three details in the text. We see, um, first of all, that this is a, a penitential morning of confession from the fact that a great cleansing is the result of it. 13 verse 1. On that day, that is the day that verses 11 to 14 just described, and they realize what they've done and mourn over their sin. On that day, there shall be a cleansing fountain opened. That the morning of chapter 12 is not a hopeless anguish, but heartfelt repentance is, is clear from the resulting cleansing in chapter 13. That this is not the, the kind of, of um, worldly grief and sorrow that, that we see in someone like Judas or that uh, Paul speaks of, and I think it's 2 Corinthians 7, that this is not that kind of mourning, but a mourning more like uh, Peter mourning over his sin and, and coming to God for grace is seen in the fact that the result is the cleansing of chapter 13, verse 1. But this being a, a penitential mourning uh, it is not just clear from what it results in, it's also clear, second, from what it is the result of. Where in, in the flow of this passage, their mourning is the result of the Lord pouring out on the house of David a spirit of grace and supplication. Or the ESV says, please for mercy. I will pour out a spirit of grace and, and supplication or please for mercy so that when they look on him, they'll mourn. The mourning is the result of the pouring. This phrase, I will pour out, echoes the language of Joel chapter 2 or Ezekiel chapter 39 where God says, I will pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Uh, the combination of, of this word pouring out and the word for spirit in the Old Testament, the, the combination of these two phrases always indicates the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit. We know that this is not a hopeless mourning because it's the result of God's spirit being poured out on his people. Because it results in the cleansing of 13 verse 1 because it is the result of God pouring out his spirit on his people. And then third, related to that, because when it says that his spirit will be poured out on them, that spirit is described as a spirit of grace. And their mourning is described as, as mourning for mercy. And this word grace is elsewhere used in Zechariah chapter 4, where, where the people's response to the stone of the temple being brought forth is to say grace, grace, because they knew that God was working among them. That that's what, what the stone being brought forth was a symbol of. So they said grace, grace. 
Likewise, this spirit um, that that is, is poured out brings about their mourning over sin because God is at work among them, leading them to plea for mercy because they believe that they will receive it from God's gracious hand, the one they pierce. This is saying that God will so work in and among them to cause them to be stricken with grief and mourn over it, pleading with him for grace and mercy. This verse is talking about genuine penitence before God. This verse is talking about people being genuinely broken over their sin. This is, again, talking about the same kind of thing that I think we see at the end of the book of Jonah. Or the same kind of thing that we just sang of from Psalm 51. Or you could take any of the penitential psalms as an example. This is heartfelt mourning over sin. It's the kind of thing we see not only in those penitential psalms, but also the kind of thing we see in Acts chapter 2. Remember as Peter stood up on that, that first uh, Pentecost and he, he preached the gospel It says that when those who heard Peter say, you have killed the author of life, it says that their hearts were cut. They were cut to to the heart, and and they said, what must we do to be saved? I believe Acts chapter 2 is a fulfillment of this passage where God has said there will come a day when the very people who pierced him, the very people who killed the author of life and struck God's only son will have poured out on them a spirit of grace and supplication so that they'll mourn for what they've done. Verses 11 and 14, whole families, men, women, children, he'll pour out his spirit on both his sons and his daughters. So they'll weep in verse 11 in something like the way they wept over King Josiah when he was pierced in the plain of Megiddo. So what he's alluding to there in that, that mourning over Josiah became something of a tradition in Israel, it tells us in 2 Chronicles 35. And so what Zechariah is doing is he's using this as a point of reference for God's people to say, that's what it will be like and more when you mourn over this God whom you've pierced. That's how widespread and and sincere your mourning will be. And he will hear your cries for mercy and he will wash you. I think maybe that's why in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit is poured out and they're overcome with this grief that Zechariah 12 prophesied and they're cut to the heart and say, what must we do? Peter says, be baptized. Every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, he points them to that which symbolizes their washing. They have received the spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. They have mourned over their sin. They have truly come to to reckon with the gravity of their sin, the very sins that you and I also commit. They've, They've understood that they deserve God's judgment for that. They've mourned over their sin and confessed it, and then they are ritually cleansed as a symbol of God's acceptance. A symbol of that cleansing fountain that flows from the side of the very one they've pierced. And Acts chapter 2 reminds us that cleansing fountain does not only flow for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, but is for all who were far off, everyone whom the Lord our God will call to himself. In other words, God gives us the promise that we too can be washed of our sin. 
as we mourn the part that we had to play in the death of God's Son and say, as we often do, it was my sin that held him there. As we recognize the gravity of our sin, but then mourn over that sin, the spirit of penitential grace, pleading for mercy, Zechariah says the fountain will be opened. The fountain that flows from the riven side of the one we've pierced. That it's opened every time the Spirit of God comes upon someone with a spirit of grace leading them to see their sin and to plead with him for mercy. Every time the Spirit of grace and pleas for mercy comes upon someone to help them to see their sin and to look to the riven side of the Son of God leading them to look to him for mercy and for cleansing. Let's say, as we'll sing in a moment, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Even the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. That is the day of his repentance, his conversion. And there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. There since by faith I saw that stream, your flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Love, that's what we see in this passage, the one who was pierced for our transgressions, pierced because of our sin, who yet in his astounding mercy welcomes us to come to the cross. Whereas John chapter 19 says, blood and water flowed from his riven side. Welcomes the very ones who have sinned against him and caused him to be pierced. Welcomes us to come to the cross and be washed. That blood and water that, that poured out of his side symbolized the cleansing that Christ's death brings to all who own their sins and look to him in true faith. As this passage leads us to the cross, there we see the greatness of our sin. As Ian Duguid said, that my sins pierced Christ, but as we confess them in true repentance and mourn over them, we find the very blood that flows from those wounds our sins inflicted forms a cleansing fountain that washes them away. As we repent of our sins and look to the riven side of the Son of God for our salvation. That's what the prophet Zechariah is calling us to do. He's calling us to look by faith to the riven side of the Son of God. That's what God by his spirit is is, uh, doing as he too comes to us in grace this afternoon. That's what he also desires from us. To help us see that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice on the cross. That's the message of the gospel as we confess it in Lord's Day 25. That's the message of Zechariah 12 and 13. That's the message also of baptism which pictures all of these gospel realities. So the time that we have left, I want to um, just, just connect what we've learned here from Zechariah to what we confess about baptism as we move from the washing of our sins to God's gracious sign that pictures it. Basically asking the question, what's the connection between Zechariah 12 and 13 and the sign of baptism? We draw several um, points of connection. First of all, very simply, 
The washing that is described in Zechariah 13.1, whereby mourning over our sin and looking in faith to the pierced side of, of, of the God-man Jesus Christ were cleansed, that washing is pictured in the gospel sign that Christ institutes called baptism. Question 69 of our catechism says, is given so that we know that as surely as water washes away the dirt from my body, so certainly his blood and spirit have washed away all my soul's impurity. You could say the baptismal font is given to us to assure us of the very gospel promises of Zechariah 13 verse 1. The baptismal font is given to us to assure us of the gospel promise that we read of here in Zechariah. What do you think is why Zechariah 13 verse 1 is, is one of the proof texts for question 70 in our catechism? Where it asks, what does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? The answer is that God, by grace, has forgiven my sin because of Christ's blood poured out in his sacrifice on the cross. Now, the very first proof text is Zechariah 13. You see, baptism makes the same point as our passage. I think another point of connection is the fact that the very language of Zechariah 13 verse 1 is already language of ritual cleansing. Instead of just just a couple of of commentators, Andrew Hill says the the purpose of the fountain in Zechariah 13 1 is to cleanse them from sin and impurity. This kind of thorough cleansing or purification was symbolized in the ritual washings and sacrifices of Old Testament worship. In other words, already in the Old Testament, the washing that happens because of the blood of Jesus that they looked forward to, already in the Old Testament, that washing was was pictured with the various ceremonial cleansings. Zechariah picks up that very language in Zechariah 13.1. Or Ian Duguid um, says of Zechariah 13.1, the repentant people needed to be cleansed from their iniquity so that God will open up for them a fountain or spring from which will flow the running water needed for ritual purification as in Leviticus 14.5. Or like the, the purifying waters that resulted from the sacrifice of the red heifer in Numbers 19, this flowing spring of purification that Zechariah 13.1 speaks of would effectively cleanse away their guilt and defilement. Already here, the, the prophet is implicitly connecting this washing with the various outward signs that pictured it throughout the Old Testament, which is what we see when we come to Acts chapter 2, whereas the, the spirit of grace is poured out of the great people who pierce the Son of God, so they're cut to the heart and mourn and say, what must we do to be saved? Peter tells them to repent and believe in the Son and be baptized to acknowledge the very, their, their sins were the reason that the Son of God was pierced, but then to believe that even as the cross reveals, to, to quote one pastor, even as it reveals their God-killing hearts, it also reveals his humanity-loving heart. Even as it reve- reveals their desire to pick up the piercing spear against God, so it reveals his desire to pick up the piercing nails for us. And as they believe that and stand beneath the fount from which flows the cleansing blood of the Son of God to let that cleansing fountain then be ritually demonstrated through baptism. As the spirit of grace and supplication is poured out in Acts chapter 2, they confess their sins. 
They believe on Christ. They are washed of their sins. And then that washing is demonstrated through the sign of baptism. You see the, the points of connection between this passage and the sign of baptism. If I could just make this point about the mode of baptism, I think this passage is one of several that, that speaks to the question of whether full immersion is indeed required. I don't want to get um, too caught up in the, the polemics of baptism, but I do just want to make the point that, that those who would insist that only immersion properly symbolizes the spiritual reality of burial with Christ, I think tend to ignore these other spiritual realities that, that are signified in baptism. Like the Spirit being poured out in 12 verse 10, or the blood of Jesus being poured out like a cleansing fountain. You can think of a passage like we heard this morning, Assurance of Pardon, where Ezekiel says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from your idols and put a new spirit within you. The sacrament of baptism symbolizes, represents, and seals the application to us of the blood of Christ for the removal of sin's guilt. The image most often used uh, to describe this in the Bible is, is sprinkling or pouring. And so it would be strange if the baptism with water that represents the sprinkling or pouring of Christ's blood, if that couldn't be properly done by sprinkling or pouring. John Murray said, It cannot be too frequently insisted that according to Scripture, cleansing from the guilt of sin is adequately and effectively administered by the mode of sprinkling or pouring no less than immersion. For it is passages like this that baptism chiefly pictures. The pouring out or sprinkling of water to symbolize the pouring out or sprinkling of Christ's blood. This is what baptism pictures. Given by God to assure us of the forgiveness of sins because of the blood that flows from Christ's riven side. As you think about Lord's Day 26, and as we think about our own baptism, God would have us to be assured this afternoon that as we have come to Christ in true faith, mourning our sin and trusting in the blood of Jesus to wash us, He does. His promise in the gospel. And yet He's gone even further than that, further than just promising that in the gospel, but taking note of the weakness and crudeness of our faith as we confess in the Belgian Confession, he has given us a sign to assure our weak and, and feeble hearts even more. He gives us a sign and picture of how he grants to us the forgiveness of sins and eternal life by grace because of Christ's one sacrifice on the cross. So the message of baptism is, is be assured of that this afternoon if you have confessed your sins and mourned over them as we see in this passage and believe that the death and resurrection of Christ is sufficient to save you from your sins. And when Satan tempts you to despair, when he, he whispers in your ear and reminds you of those sins that you've committed, when he, he makes you to feel like you have not done enough to measure up like Martin Luther, you say, I've been baptized. Not to say that the baptism itself by the work performed is where we place our trust. But it's that outward sign and washing that pictures the gospel reality that Christ has washed away your sins. And so when you're overwhelmed by your guilt, when Satan tempts you 
to despair when you have sinned against God for the thousandth time. You look to the cross and to the riven side of the Son of God and say, I've been washed. And God in his grace has even pictured that for me in baptism so that I might be assured and not doubt that he has heard my pleas for mercy, that he has opened the cleansing fountain for me by grace. And that precious blood of the Son shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. So we'll sing in a moment. That's, that's what we look forward to. As you think even about those, those lines, be saved to sin no more. As you think about the, the words that we sang this morning from Rock of Ages where it speaks of the, the, the riven side of Christ and the, the blood and water that flow from it as the double cure both of sin's guilt and also of its power. This one last point of application for us is that the sign of baptism does not only remind us in those moments when we are tempted to doubt, reminding us of the promise of the gospel that we've been washed, but it also reminds us that as those upon whom the Spirit has been poured out, that we are to walk in newness of life. We confess in question 70, to be washed with Christ's Spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed and sanctified us to be members of Christ so that more and more we die to sin, live holy and blameless lives. And if we were to have kept reading in Zechariah 13, that's the same thing we see there. We're after 13, verse 1. The next five verses is idolatry and, and sin and unbelief being, being cut off and removed as the people who have been washed by Christ's blood and spirit walk in new obedience to him. So the message of baptism, the message of the gospel for us this afternoon is you have been washed as you confess your sins and mourn over them and look to the riven side of the sun, believe that. And then as you believe that, um, live like it as you walk in newness of life. Let us close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this uh, promise of the gospel. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that poured from his riven side. As we consider the truth of Zechariah 12, verse 10, that the one who is both God and man was, was pierced, we are led to see our sin. Now this passage reveals the awfulness of, of humanity. That in our utter rebellion, we would seek to take up the, the, the piercing spear against the one who made us, the one who loves us. And yet, Father, as we look at this passage, we don't only see the awfulness of our sin, but we see also the amazing grace of you, our God, that you and your Son would be pierced for us so that we might be washed. So that the very fount that flowed from the, the riven side of the Son because of our sin would be the very thing that cleanses us from our sin. So, Lord, we rejoice in your amazing grace. We rejoice even yet more that you would then give us as, as a gracious Father who is mindful of our weakness and mindful of our doubts, that you would, you would give us a sign. You'd give us a picture to seal to us the promises of the gospel that as surely as water washes away dirt from the body, so certainly Christ, by his blood and spirit, has washed away all our soul's impurity 
our sin. So we pray, Father, that even as we have contemplated this this afternoon, that you would help us to um, improve our baptism, as the Westminster Larger Catechism says, to consider the meaning of it, especially in moments of temptation, to draw comfort from this gracious sign that Christ has given. We pray that you would help us not only in moments of sin and temptation, when Satan whispers in our ear to look to the assurance that baptism gives us, but but all our life long, we would say also to ourselves, I've been baptized, and so that means I'm called to walk in such a way as one who has been washed and united to my Savior. Help us, Father, be a people who take seriously the gravity of our sin. Help us to be a people who mourn over it as those in Acts chapter 2 or Zechariah 12 did. Not just at the moment of, of our first repentance or conversion. But help us to be a people who mourn over our sin all our lives long. Help us to be a people who take small steps of obedience, walking in such a way that brings you honor and glory as the one who has been so gracious toward us. All this we pray for Jesus' sake.